Shavanasum. So, our last afternoon of silence. Let's meditate while the med- meditation is still available. <laughs> One quiet session.
nasa. So, first question. Could you please comment on the concepts of space and time within the substrate consciousness? Substrate consciousness, when you're dwelling in it lucidly, you're in it, you know you're in it, uh, is, when you're really resting, it is relatively non-conceptual, especially non-conceptual in the sense of being non-discursive. It's not chatting. It's not conceptually labeling things. Right? And so, in any overt way, while you're simply resting in that state, uh, the concepts of space and time don't exist. Not to say that it's absolutely non-conceptual, you recall that, but you're not partitioning. When you're just resting there, you're not partitioning your experience into space and time. Reminds me of a really nice story that Ken Lamemba told about one yogi that achieved shamatha. Some of you will know the story for sure. It's really a nice story. And that senior yogi, and he was in, at that moment, in that phase of his practice, really emphasizing Shamata, and he was decided to make a pilgrimage to Lhasa. He lived out in Kham, I believe, so eastern Tibet. Long trip. But he set out, probably on foot, with his attendant. And day by day, just very slowly, methodically, just making their way east, or west, west. And each evening, or late afternoon, when his attendant and he had hiked as much as they wanted for the day, They'd pitch their camp and then have a meal. And then the yogi would just go into meditation all night. He would just go into samadhi. And then it would sleep. And the next morning, the, attend the attendant's job was, when the, it's getting light, prepare some tea. And then the yogi, this actually does pertain to space and time. It's not just a random story. <laughs> then the yogi would have primed himself because you, you may wonder, if you just immerse yourself in a state that is very non-conceptual and completely disengaged from the entire surrounding environment and your body, then how would you come out? You know, Why wouldn't you just remain lost there and starve to death? You know? And uh, this yogi, there, and no one starves to death, so it's not already a concern. <laughs> but uh, the yogi had primed himself and told his attendant, when you've, when you've broken camp the next morning, and you have some tea ready, boil up some nice Tibetan tea, then as soon as you're all ready, then just call out, tea's on, and that will be my cue to come out of samadhi. And then the yogi would come out of samadhi, have his tea, and then they'd head out on the next leg, leg of the journey. So day after day after day, it's a long trip, it could be two months, even three months trip, depending on where you live out in Amdor Kham. Finally, they're just a few days outside of Lhasa. And the attend and the yogi's enjoying the whole trip. I mean, during the daytime they have this fantastic scenery, and every night he's going into bliss. So where's the, you know, what's to complain about? But the attendant is bored. He's so bored every day, the same routine, day after day. And this really boring yogi to hang out with. He just goes in meditation. And so he's almost like a like a horse coming back to the, back to the, uh, you know, back to his barn, and he can almost smell Haza. And the entertainment's there, and people to see, and partying, and you maybe have a picnic, and whatever. He's, he can see Hlasa just a few days over, and he's probably a lot faster than the yogi. 
And so one morning he wakes up. He prepares the tea. He looks over at the yogi. The yogi like this. He said, oh, the heck with it. Let him get his own tea. I'm out of here. You know, he just takes off. He can probably get to Lhasa in one day. He can, you know, really get in there. He's ready to see the city, you know. So he doesn't call out. He's on. Oh, yeah. He just takes off. So he makes his way, you know, zip, zip, zip. He makes his way up to Lhasa. There's a great Lama there that the yogi himself was going to meet. And so, and this person devout. So he also seeks an audience, you know, seeks to make, make, a, make a kata offering to the Lama. And he comes to him, makes his, makes his offering. And the Lama says, who are you? I'm such and such Lama's attendant. And the great Lama says, where is he? <laughs> and uh, the attendant says, oh, he, he's coming soon. He's coming soon. And the Lama says, no, he's not. Go back and get him. <laughs> so he heads back. And there's the yogi still sitting there. And so the attendant says, prepare some tea. And then tea's on, and then, and then the yogi comes out of his meditation. Okay? So it's quite an interesting thing there, that you can cue yourself to come out after a certain number of hours, or you can cue yourself for a stimulus that you otherwise wouldn't even hear, but that was the one cue that he was ready for. Tea's on, and that brought him out of meditation. So that said, Probably enough. There are experiences in the space of the substrate, but you're not labeling it. Um, the very sense of time, the experience of time, overall, is in, as a general as a general statement, is very strongly correlated with conceptualization. And as conceptualization subsides, the sense of the passage of time tends to also subside. So that's that. Here's one from James. Oh, what role do the Beyul, oh, oh, Beyul, or hidden lands, he even spelled it with Tibetan, proper Tibetan spelling, very impressive. Uh, what note do the, what role do the Beyul, or hidden lands, play within the context of Tibetan Buddhist practice? Hmm. Well, overall, especially Vajrayana practice, but not just Vajrayana practice. It's designed to remove the obscurations from awareness of all kinds. And one of the types of obscurations, there are many, many layers and layers, but one of these are called legidiba, or karmic obscurations. Karmic obscurations, right? And so, it's rather like, it's rather, it's only as an analogy, of course, it's rather like the light spectrum from infrared way up to ultraviolet, gamma, so forth, cosmic rays. And that is, we human beings with the kind of particular kind of eyes that we have, then we see a very, very limited bandwidth that we can actually see. But we can't see infrared, we can't see ultraviolet or anything higher than that. But within that range, then we see, oh, there's, there's, you know, I'm seeing green and that corresponds to a certain frequency and red, yellow and so forth. So there's a commonplace. Um, well, in a somewhat similar fashion, now not by the power of 
you know, the limitations of the visual cortex and the particular type of eyeballs we have and so forth, but rather by the power of karma, the kind of karma that propels us into a human rebirth versus some other deva, preta, what have you, in propelling us here, then in terms of our mental awareness, the visual, the auditory, that's very biologically based. But it's a very interesting point, and that is when we speak of the 18 elements, the 18 datus, the six modes of consciousness, six faculties, independence upon which the consciousnesses arise, and then the six domains of experience, right? Out of those 18, classic, classic Buddhism, the faculties, the sense bases, independence upon which the five senses arise, they're all physical, okay? They're all physical. And nowadays, modern neuroscience, is, neuroscience gives us a lot of very detailed and very accurate information about that. The role of visual cortex, auditory cortices, the olfactory lobes, and so forth. Um, but what's interesting here is that while neuroscientists, people like uh, Christoph Koch, I know, he invited me to Caltech a few years back. He's really the leading neuroscientist, to the best of my knowledge, looking for what are called the NCC, the Neural Correlates of Consciousness. And what they're looking for, what that, that phrase means, you may know this already, is what is the minimal amount of neuronal activity, or minimal and specific type of neuronal activity, that is necessary for the generation or emergence of consciousness. Right? So you start doing the, the, the wooden mallet thing on your head. You know, how much do you need to knock out before there's just no consciousness at all? Well, of course, this is based upon the almost unquestioned assumption that consciousness actually is emerging from the brain, uh, which if that's, if that's false, then the whole, the whole pursuit of the NCC is futile. Because there is no minimal neuronal activity. That is, when everything shuts down and you enter the dark near attainment, in which case all that's left in terms of consciousness is just the substrate consciousness aware of the substrate or slipping into the substrate. At that point, there may very well be no neuronal activity whatsoever. But that doesn't mean consciousness has gone to zero, let alone the clear light of death that takes place after that. But this is a very interesting point. I know I'm really elaborating here, but I find it interesting and it, it's not insignificant. This is why really top-notch neuroscientists, people like Richard Davidson, Antoine Lutz and others, are so keen to find out what, if anything, is going on in the brain when these yogis are abiding in the clear light of death. Because that's just a factual statement. I mean, that is, okay, that there's certainly, that's one way of characterizing, but there's just no doubt. There are, this has been certified multiple times now by people who are not Buddhist, who are totally skeptical, medical doctors, and so forth and so on. These yogis who die, and apparently all metabolic processes cease, and yet the body maintains a luster and does not decompose and it can remain that way for days. So they could be dwelling just in the substrate consciousness. But in most cases that are being, you know, that are being reported in recent times, they're really dwelling beyond the substrate consciousness in the clear light of death. But is anything going on in the brain at all, right? Now, this doesn't, you know, if the answer is yes or no, it doesn't really prove anything gargantuan. It certainly doesn't prove reincarnation or anything like that. But here's a, an enormous anomaly for the neuroscientists and general biologists altogether. The body shouldn't be able to do that, you know, no matter what. It, and now they've determined there's no breathing. So I've, I asked, the last time I saw Richard Davidson in Sikkim last December, 
they've done this research on one Galupa Yogi. Galupa Yogi that spent, I think, 18 days in the clear light of death. And I believe they got to him only after it, he'd entered in. So, And it's it's really a sacred time. You don't mess with a body like that. But this was with the, with the permission of the Dalai Lama. So I think they were not able to put the EG cap on his head, because that would have been not invasive, but it would have been a little bit perturbing. But they were able to bring in some very, very delicate sensors, including heat, uh, heat measures, and of course the breath is pretty straightforward. And um, so I asked Richie, you know, just the basic fundamental question, was there neuronal activity or not? Any EEG, any EEG waves generated by the brain when this yogi is remaining day after day after day with no decomposition of the body whatsoever. And Richie very rightly could not answer. It was interesting. Very rightly. I have no criticism at all. He wasn't being cagey. He's an absolutely honest, honest scientist. But he said, I, I can't say. He said, I can't say. There was an anomaly that took place well into this yogi's clear light of death. And we have no way of explaining it. It was just so totally weird and unexpected. We have no idea what to make of it. We know, just don't know how to make any sense of it. And therefore we wonder whether this was an anomaly created by, it's called an artifact, an artifact of the system of measurement, which means it's just your old cruddy technology. It blipped when it should have bleeped, you know. And so we don't know. We just, we, we can't say yet. And we're still analyzing the data. And then I think I mentioned this earlier, we need just more yogis. <laughs> you know, we need more yogis because this was just too bizarre. So, of course, the Buddhist hypothesis is that there are no NCC, there is no neuronal, there's no minimal amount of neuronal activity that's necessary for generating consciousness because beings in the bardo have consciousness and they don't have any brains. Right? Now, that doesn't mean they're stupid, it's just they don't need it. They're not, bra- <laughs> they're not brain dependent. Right? Uh, this is all relating to Bayou, hidden lands, right? And the metaphor of the, how do you say? Never mind the metaphor. But the point that, or the metaphor of the, of the visual spectrum, what I find terribly interesting here, in this regard, is that the faculty, it's called indriya, the faculty, independence upon which the mind emerges, mental consciousness, not visual consciousness, that, nowadays we say it's the, it's the retina, it's the optic nerve, and the visual cortex, that whole system there. That would be the visual, the faculty in the minutes upon which visual perception arises. And if you damage it, then you don't have any more visual perception. Damage any part of it. Really smash the retina, severely damage the optic nerve, or do major damage the, to the visual cortex. And, and the system shuts down. And you're blind. And that goes for all of the five physical senses. But what about mental consciousness? And there, the faculty is non-physical. And that's why I related it to Christoph Koch and the clear light of death and all of that. The faculty independence upon which mental consciousness... Now, which mental consciousness are they referring to? Well, in that same bandwidth as the visual, the auditory, and so forth. In other words, coarse. Coarse mental consciousness. You, you, James, right now are mentally aware that I'm talking. You're not just getting visual impressions and hearing sounds coming in. But you mentally know that... I'm the guy talking and you're understanding what I'm saying. So you're aware of me by, what, by way of your, at least two, the auditory and the visual, 
but you're also mentally aware right now with coarse mental consciousness. So independence upon what does that coarse mental consciousness arise? Independence upon the mental faculty. The mental faculty. And my strong... And so that's just straight Buddhism. That's just straight. There's no, no interpretation. There. Just, everybody knows this who studied Buddhist psychology well. Um, but now if we take... Let's like take, take you as an... Well, just stick with me. So I'm 61 years old. So at some point... Uh, at or following the time of conception, when the egg and sperm got together in my case, at that time or sometime thereafter, between then and now, my first moment of mental consciousness arose. Alan Wallace's coarse consciousness. My first moment of mental consciousness arose. Sometime, it's extremely implausible, it was prior to conception. That doesn't make any sense from any perspective. Alan Wallace's mental perception. So we can cut out not before conception, and then maybe at conception, maybe a month later, three months later, who knows when. But some, so I'm being really loose here. Sometime at, from that point on, and clearly I have mental consciousness now. I'll, I'll guarantee. I'll, I'll vouch for that one. And so if we take, so, so at some point there was a beginning to this particular continuum of Alan Wallace's coarse mental consciousness. Had to be. That coarse one, that doesn't exist forever. It had a beginning. So it had to have a first moment. Now, we don't really need to know exactly when it was, but it had to have a first moment, right? So, then we can ask, independence upon what did that first moment arise? As it, the faculty, its basis. And the Buddhist answer is, preceding moment of mental consciousness. That is the classic answer. The preceding moment of mental consciousness. But you can say, well, wait a minute, this was, this was the first moment of mental consciousness. Yeah, first moment of course consciousness. Alan Wallace's consciousness. This particular sentient being, this human being's consciousness. So what was the preceding one? Any guesses? Substrate consciousness. A process of elimination. It's not Rikpa. It's not Rikpa. Rikpa's not in time. Substrate consciousness. Yeah. So substrate consciousness is the faculty independence upon which your course mental consciousness arrives. Now that's true, not only at conception. That would be true if Katinka here hadn't come up with the right answer. If tonight at two o'clock in the morning, she's deep asleep, totally zoned out, her mind has collapsed into substrate consciousness, and then for whatever reason, somebody knocks on her door. You want to say goodbye to the kitty? (laughs) (laughs) And then knocking, knocking until, what? 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 And the first moment... See, when she's deep asleep, coarse consciousness is not arising. It's all collapsed into the substrate consciousness. She's not aware of anything. But somebody knocks loudly enough, and then, mm, what? And there's a first moment of consciousness. Independence upon what? The preceding moment of substrate consciousness. So, substrate consciousness is the basis independence upon which coarse consciousness arises in all occasions. It's the ground. It's the launching pad. Now, I'm going to tie this together with the bandwidth of visual perception, which arises related to, clearly, the particular type of visual cortex we have. So owls, I think, have eagles and what vultures have a very, very large visual cortex compared, you know, in terms of the overall brain size. Owls, clearly, can see a, a broader bandwidth with greater sensitivity, anyway, than we can, and so forth. And so this is clearly 
the degree, the spectrum that you can see. And also hear. So I, I believe dogs can hear very high-pitched sounds that we can't hear. So why? Well, biologists will tell you. It has to do with their auditory cortex, right? And so then we can ask, all right, there's clearly, as with sound, there's a certain bandwidth of sound. We can't hear extremely low frequency or extremely high frequency. We have a wedge. For visual, we have a wedge. Okay, now finally relate this. You see, I love to wind around and around and around and around to hidden lands. To hidden lands. They're hidden because they're off the bandwidth. They're outside of the bandwidth of ordinary human beings. Not so much outside the bandwidth of visual, but outside the bandwidth of mental. So how can you increase, broaden your bandwidth of mental perception so that you can see directly with your mind's eye? Well, purifying that which locked you into the bandwidth in the first place, karma. Purify the karma. So you broaden the bandwidth. And so then some people have broadened the bandwidth, and we hear about this occasionally. Somebody just sent me an email recently about some, some fellow, not at all ostentatious, but he was like that little kid in the movie The Sixth Sense, I see dead people. You know, and, and, and it happened as an adult, but some, there was something that just, and then suddenly he says, I see all these beings. Or here's an interesting one. It goes back to this, this book, The Way of the White Clouds by Lama Anagarika Govinda that I read about 40 years ago. But his teacher was really a very, very accomplished, highly accomplished, contemplative. And after spending his 12 years or so in retreat, the story goes that he was out and he became a very renowned Lama very quickly. Tremendous realization. And he was out with quite a large caravan. They were out in one of those vast open spaces in Tibet, probably central, central southern Tibet. But vast, vast sky, just vast in all directions. And they... They camped, whole entourage, a whole caravan of people. Then the yogi, Tomogeshe he went into meditation, and as he was in meditation, then in this vast sky, then many, many of the people in the, in the caravan just look up in the sky, and they just saw the sky just filled with devas and celestial beings and enlightened beings. And it was kind of like, they're seeing it, you know. And some people saw more, some people saw less, some people greater detail, some less detail. But he simply displayed this, you know, by the power of his samadhi. So are they really seeing it? Were there photons coming from these beings up in the sky, striking their retina? I really doubt it, you know. They're seeing it, but they're seeing it with mental perception, right? And he had been able to touch it to temporarily kind of unveil their minds. And then they were talking among themselves, and you see that one over there? Look, there's white Tara over there. Can you see Manjushri? Look at Manjushri. Look at, look at, and, and yeah, I can see it too, and I can see it like that, you know. And then just gradually it faded out. But some people saw more, some people saw less. Right? So, as for displays like that, a wide variety of that kind, then not only there are beings who will appear with very pure vision, you may, oh, Genlam Rimba, for example, told me, on one occasion, meditating. I think he's now, I think it'd be okay to say. He was... We were just, when it was during the year that we lived together, in the same hut. This was in Washington State. He said, oh, I don't know what, remember what the context of the the conversation was. But it's relevant here. Now we're kind of drawing to a close. It's nice. And he said, today I was just meditating. And he was not meditating on Tara. He was not meditating on it. He was just, maybe, he meditated a lot on emptiness. But he was just meditating. 
And then he said, as is rather like, you know, our practice, like settling the mind or awareness of awareness, you know, but no visualization. And there he was. And then simply, suddenly, appeared in his mind's eye, Tara. Tara. Radiantly clear. Just like seeing with the eyes. That is, and what he, he was very careful in his articulation. He said, what appeared was the appearance of Tara. He made no claims beyond that. He said, I was just meditating, and there arose an extremely vivid appearance of Tara, and the appearance articulated the words, do not, do not be concerned for yourself, take care of, take care of my children. And then she vanished. And he made no claims that I saw Tara, I have realization, I saw this, he just, that was the appearance, and that was the sound, and then it vanished. Okay? So one may infer from that, pure mind. Pure mind. So as there are individuals like that, who have pure vision, Dujum Lingba as a child, having pure visions, actually visiting the, the pure land of Padmasambhava as a youngster, as a child. He's not alone there. Quite a few of the great yogis of the past have done so. So in Tibet itself, for those with pure vision, there will be lands that are hidden, not because somebody's put a cloaking device on them or tried to make them secret or anything like that. It's just that they are available, they are evident to mental perception only for those who have unobscured their minds. Right? So, Beyul, Beyul, hidden, hidden lands. And this is why I, in my brief allusion in response to Santiago's question the other day about Shambhala, I visited uh, with my wife about three years ago, I think. During the summer, I went to Mongolia. She goes there every 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 year. Has a very strong connection with with uh, Mongolia, and she's an outstanding scholar of Kala Chakra. Uh, and so she took me to a monastery, way out in the middle of nowhere in the Gobi. In the Gobi, it was like it was like visiting Mars. Not that I've been there, but I have I've seen the photos. Yeah, that was enough for me. And uh, but it was it was red, and there was. Virtually no vegetation. I mean, if you'd, if you'd shot it and said, this is Mars, people would believe you. And way out there in the, in the northern Gobi, just this vastness, open space, kind of red earth. Then in the 19th century, when Yingma Lama, uh, established a monastery, he was, he was very, very accomplished. Polymath, tremendous range. He was, he wrote poetry, he wrote plays, he was, he was a great champion of women's rights of really bringing the nuns up, allowing them equal opportunity and all of that. A uh, very deep realization in Dzogchen. Also strong connection with the Galupa tradition, so he had great respect for both. And he established a monastery that way out there in the middle of the Gobi. And he chose it. This is just for fun. This is, you know, this is just for fun. But he chose it because he found that right, right next to where he had established this monastery, there was a portal to... Shambhala. A portal to Shambhala. Okay? And so he established, he created a mandala, I think a 108 stupas, right next to the monastery, of the place that was the portal, 108 stupas, did this way back in the 19th century, all around Kala Chakra. And then at the, at the far side of the, this mandala, then there was a path that just goes off into the desert. And you look out there and it's just like, more of Mars. There's nothing there, you know. But if you practice there, and then you develop pure vision, then if you follow that road, 
it'll take you right to Shambhala. And if you don't have pure vision, it'll take you right to um, death, I think. <laughs> and just no water, you know, and then, it's, and then you're finished. And so, that's one of the portals to Shambhala. My wife has in her keeping, we haven't translated it yet. I think it's Tibetan, but it could be in Mongolia. It sounds so totally cool. It, it's seven portals around the world, seven portals to Shambhala. And you, and you go there, and then you purify your mind, and you, it's just like a wormhole, right, to Shambhala. So Shambhala is probably the most renowned of the Bayou, the hidden lands on this planet, because it's clearly on this planet, you know. Um, but you won't pick it up with satellite photos, and you won't pick it up at all, unless you've purified your own vision. And then a nice point, now, just being here in this place that, you know, if you had pure vision, you'd see this is a pure land. Uh, that looks like Vajrasattva's mandala to me. You know, a nice center, all white, four corners. Dead. Um, but if you, you know, came here for a little bit longer retreat and became a tenth stage Arya Bodhisattva, <laughs> somewhat longer retreat. We haven't gotten those planned yet. Um, you know, all in good time. Um, and as a tenth stage Ayurbodhisattva, in other words, you're basically at the end of the path. You're ready to make the final transition to removing the final obscurations, the veils of your rikpa. And so it's completely unveiled. Well, if you're here in Phuket, and this is where you achieve enlightenment, where you will be from your perspective is Akanishta. And Akanishta is a pure land. It's said to be the pure land where all the highest level Bodhisattvas achieve enlightenment. So wherever you are, New Guinea, Phuket, Detroit, New York City, where you will be, will be Akanishta. So that's a pure land. That's a, that's a hidden land to anyone who's not an Arya Bodhisattva. What was Padmasambhava's purpose in revealing them, hidden lands, especially on a delayed basis via treasured texts? Well, the same rationale behind the treasure texts themselves, perhaps the same rationale for which uh, for which the Mahayana teaching didn't become public until about 400, 500 years after the Buddha's death. I myself, you know, even though Western, that is, modern trained scholars may really think I'm very silly, I can totally live with that. Um, it just strikes me as unreasonable that the Buddha, having achieved perfect enlightenment, wouldn't teach other people how to do the same. You know, to become Buddhas. But there's virtually no instruction in the Pali Canon on how to become a Bodhisattva. I think there's zero instruction on how to become a Bodhisattva. And hardly any instruction on how to become a Buddha in the Pali Canon. Well, why would he leave that out? Good heavens. I mean, he didn't inspire anybody to want to become a Buddha, only to become Arhats. So it looks to me like that there was some editing involved. You know, that was the, that was the Canon. Those are the recorded teachings for people who really wanted to become Arhats. And it's a, Great job. You know, it's a wonderful collection. It's quite sufficient. But it strikes me as utterly reasonable that the Buddha would have also given Mahayana teachings for people really wanting to devote themselves to Bodhisattva path. But those teachings, according to the Mahayana tradition, they were taught by the Buddha extensively, but they didn't become public for some hundreds of years afterwards. But when they became public, they just spread like wildfire. They went all over the place, as far west as Afghanistan, up to Siberia, down to Indonesia, they just spread everywhere. They, they caught on so quickly, which is quite remarkable. 
when you consider the first four or five hundred years, the teachings of the Buddha that were public were simply equated to the teachings of the Buddha to become an arhat. And then some pretty, very, very, very different teachings. I mean, the feel of the Mahayana Sutras is very different than the feel of the Pali Canon. In the Pali Canon, you get the impression the Buddha is a man. He's a man. And he lived and he died and he's not coming back. So he's an enlightened man, but then he's a, a gone enlightened man. Oh, the whole ambience of the Mahayana Sutras is radically different. And the fact that they were accepted by so many, many, many people all over Asia as being authentic, quite remarkable. But for some time they were hidden, right? And the same goes for the Vajrayana teachings. And the final, final one to emerge in India, and I mentioned this earlier, roughly 1500 years after the Buddha, was the Kalachakra teachings. The teachings of Kalachakra that were said to be preserved in the hidden land of Shambhala, but after roughly 1500 years from the time that the Buddha imparted them to the king of Shambhala, who came to India to, to, India, to India to receive them, from that time, they weren't anywhere extant in India. 1500 years after the Buddha has passed away, the teachings become manifest, and once again, people of the stature of Naropa, Atisha, and so forth and so on, they're accepting them as authentic. That's really, I think, really remarkable. Again, I give the analogy, imagine imagine some new scriptures, some new gospels of Jesus being discovered in the 16th century. And the Roman Catholic Church saying, oh yeah, these are absolutely, count them in, we're just going to rewrite the Bible. You know, we'll add these in, this will become, you know, that chance. But, that's what happened. So, as teachings can be preserved until the time is ripe. Until the time is ripe. So, Dujum Lingba himself, when he revealed the Vajra essence, when, he, when the Vajra essence was revealed to him, I can't remember the exact number of years, but I think it was 14 years or so before he made them public. So he received them, wrote them down, but he kept them quiet for 14 years, and then public, and then public. So it's just when is the time ripe? When is the time ripest for certain of these sometimes earth dharma to be revealed? You know, some yogi, and this has been seen many, many times, that, uh, witnessed publicly by Tibetans, unless, here's the alternative explanation. Tibetan culture is a society that they all agreed centuries and centuries ago to trick the rest of the world. It was a massive conspiracy of all the most educated people, the most, you know, the most advanced and so forth, and then with the collusion of the entire populace, let's trick everybody else, because we're all fooling everybody. So there's a hypothesis, a vast conspiracy theory that Tibetans are out to trick everybody and we're the big suckers, you know? That's a, that's an alternative hypothesis and the other one is that that's not true and that century after century we get these dertun and they'll come to a rock split it open and there's a text inside a rock, you know, and out comes and then they, and then they make it public or Dujin Ling, which is going to meditation, out comes out of his mind space, then comes teachings. And so whether it's earth dharma, whether it's mind dharma, when the time is ripe, then they're made available. Which makes it interesting in terms of the fact that Buddha Dhamma became global only 2,500 years after the Buddha passed away. Until then, Buddha Dhamma itself was kind of hidden from the, glo- from the rest of the globe outside of Asia. And so when the time is ripe, when it's most propitious, when there could be greatest benefit, then the, the hidden lands may become evident, the treasured texts may become evident, and uh, and then Shambhala itself, as I mentioned, right now it's hidden for all for everyone within within our world who doesn't have exceptionally pure vision. Um, and then 
in a time not terribly distant from now, just like the Mahayana emerging, Vajrayana emerging, Kala Chakra teachings emerging in our world, suddenly it will be just as if it's uncloaked. It's like the curtain is pulled back. And where it's always been, suddenly it will be evident, and there will be a joining of these two worlds. It will be rather like two tectonic plates joining, but when they first come together, because it'll be a great, it'll be a great conflict. But the result will be good, and that will herald in the time of great spiritual bounty. What is the relationship between wilderness and Buddhist practice? Um, oh, you can go to the ninth chapter of Shantideva's text, the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, and many other texts, many songs of experience of like Tibetan great yogis uh, in the Zen tradition. So much beautiful poetry and imagery, all centered around the beauties and the, the just the benefits of living in nature, in the wilderness, and devoting oneself to practice. Uh, in China, also very strong classic Chinese Indian Buddhism, Chinese classic Chinese Buddhism, again just such a profound and subtle, refined appreciation of nature and of wilderness, incorporating this into their into their into their painting, into their poetry, and so forth. So it's really very strongly emphasized. And in text, meditation text after meditation text that I've that I've studied, that I've been taught, it basically starts off by saying, "And now go out into the wilderness you know, and be solitary, and radically simplify your life, and now devote yourself to practice." And that's all. That was a long answer. Okie dokie. From Nico, in the Vajra vehicle or Vajrayana. There are the practices of the illusory body and of the clear light in order to cultivate mainly the causes of a form body and of a truth body of a Buddha, respectively. Yes, so this is in stage of, most explicitly, stage of completion practice. In Dzogchen, is there anything similar to the practice of the illusory body or by sustaining the view of Rikpa, both causes are cultivated or unveiled simultaneously? No, that's a very, very good question. Um, Dujun Limba comments in the Vajra Essence that in some cases, by going through this... Well, number... Oh, he, well, I'm going to back up a little bit. In the Vajra Essence before, you can check this in the book Stilling the Mind, my commentary on the opening section of the text. I don't remember exactly the number of days. I think it's roughly two weeks. Maybe it's ten days. Before he teaches shamatha, he says, well, you remember this? Before, before he goes into the shamatha presentation, settling the mind, his natural state. He says, okay, so now we'll link James's question with Nikos. And that is, he says, okay, now go into the wilderness and go into solitude. And now, but he said, but, but before, before he goes into it, he says, okay, now just let your awareness rest in space. Just merge your mind with space and do that all day, for ten days, two weeks, something like that. And that's just that's it. That's the whole instruction. Just merge your mind with space. And do it all the time. Just don't do anything other than that. And as a result of that, if you gain a direct realization of Rikpa, you may skip to the end of the book <laughs> and go directly to the direct crossing over practice. Trikya. It's, it's an entrance, it's so wonderful. It's an entrance exam. And that is, if you're an advanced placement student, then you skip the shamatha, and you skip the vipassana, and you skip the, the tech 
And you just go directly to the end of the book to finish off what you've started in your previous lines. Because you're coming in as such a, a refined soul with so little dust on your eyes that you don't need to mess around with all the, the state of regeneration, the state of completion, and the poa, and the tumo, and the ch- and the, all that. Just, okay, good, now you've realized Ritba, you know what to do. Go off and finish it off in Tutgal, direct crossing over. So that's a possibility. He says the same thing in the Intent of Samadhibhadra and in the, the uh, Shabhadra Tantra. There's that little preliminary exercise. See whether you're an advanced placement student. If you're not, don't worry about it. And I get down to work. <laughs> Achieve shamatha. Right? Now he says later on in the text that when you've gained direct realization of rikpa, it is possible, in, in some cases it occurs, that a person simply by dwelling in rikpa that that will be enough. And all of the qualities of the enlightened mind will just spontaneously spring forth. And you'll become a Buddha. That's it. With no further practice. No Tutgal at all. So there are occasions. Again, they have to set, they, they throw the net so large, recognizing that, you know, there are people who may be encountering this text and they've just spent the last, you know, five lifetimes meditating 20 hours a day for 60 years on Dzogchen and they're ready just to finish off the job. So don't bring them back to kindergarten and first grade and elementary school, secondary school, when they've done all that work already and they're just ready to blow the final dust off their minds and they're ready to finish, right? So in some cases, you don't need all four, shamatha, vipassana, tekchut, and turtgel. Actually, the tekchut may be enough. Tekchut may be enough. The turtgel just take care of itself. And all the qualities of Buddha mind come out of that. So that's a possibility, right? In most cases, though, there are all these phases laid out. The, more, the four essential ones, the four indispensable ones are those four. You may augment that to the extent that you find helpful with stage regeneration and completion, and of course with other practices of your choice. Um, but in this regard, then the forms, now I'll be very brief, because now we're going into very esoteric country, to realize Rigpa is to realize Dharmakaya for that. Texture is really the practice, the breakthrough. That's Dharmakaya. It's right into Dharmakaya country. And the Turtgel, the direct crossing over, that will fully manifest, such practice fully manifests all the powers of the Buddha mind for emanation and so forth. So roughly speaking, that would be more corresponding. It corresponds to both, but that would be that which fully draw forth the power, which would include the Rupakayas, the Sambhogakaya and the Manakaya. So this is a time for a few words. Anala, you have so much more understanding than I. Anything you'd want to add or, or subtract? <laughs> As is? Okay. So that's that. Yeah. But, but Dujum Lingba is very explicit, uh, is unequivocal and you cannot misinterpret. He says, everything that, is, that can be achieved through even the most elaborate state of regeneration practices and the state of completion practice, everything that can be achieved there can be achieved by realizing Rikpa. Because all of those qualities are in Rikpa, just waiting to be manifest. And the Turtgel is to help you manifest them. So it's very, very much a matter of discovery. Much, much more. Immeasurably more than any notion of development. Okay? Good. Would you please explain the role of reverence and devotion in one's spiritual practice? Sure. We value what we revere. We value what we're devoted to. Right? That's just a general truth. 
whatever it is. Some people are devoted to looking as handsome or as beautiful as possible. And they revere when they see another person who's just incredibly good looking. They're just like, oh, can I join your fan club? You know, can I make offerings? Would you sign my, would you sign my, my hand? <laughs> to spit on my hand. I'll, I'll cherish it. You know, Really, people revere, they're devoted to beauty, they're devoted to money, they're devoted to fame, devoted to cars. I've heard as a former BMW motorcycle owner that owners of Harley-Davidson's, Harley-Davidson, you know, the other kind, they're called hogs, the other kind of motorcycle. Some people, so what? Couldn't hear. Okay. Uh, but I've heard, and I think it's true, that some people, owners of Harley-Davidson's, you know, they so are devoted and so revere their motorcycles, they park them in their living rooms. You know, you wouldn't put a, put a motorcycle like that in the garage. They put it in the living room. You know. I kid you not. So, are some people devoted to their motorcycles? Yes, absolutely. So what we're devoted to, what we revere, that's where the mind goes. That's where the mind goes. That's a profound psychological truth, and the Buddha said so in basically so many truth, so many words. And Jesus did too. Not very similar to, I can't remember exactly, but it's there in the New Testament. But that which you really cherish, there goes your mind. Right? So I would, there's a practice I'm doing every day these days. And in the practice, it says, Now that, now that I'm on the spot in public, it's hard for me to come because I'm saying it every day and I've memorized it. Your own pristine awareness. Dongsel, empty and clear. Unconditioned expanse. Unconditioned expanse of the clear and empty, pristine awareness that is yours. I take refuge in the unconditioned expanse, the clarity and emptiness of my own pristine awareness. And in the divine embodiments, in Manakaya, Samokaya, Dhammakaya, so forth, and the various facets of primordial consciousness, mirror-like primordial consciousness, and so forth. So, it's taking refuge. That is reverence and devotion. Taking refuge is an expression of, it's not just respect, it's not just reliance, it's reverence and devotion of utterly entrusting oneself. But to what? The core is the ground, the unconditioned expanse of the clarity, emptiness of your own pristine awareness. That is the ultimate object of refuge, of devotion, of reverence, which manifests as the various divine embodiments and becomes refracted 
as the various aspects of primordial consciousness, mirror-like primordial consciousness, and so on. That's reverence and devotion to what? To your unforeseen awareness and all of its effulgence is all that, all that emerges from it. So, when there is reverence and devotion, then, like a person who has a fetish about a type of motorcycle, or a fetish, a man or a woman has a fetish about looking a certain way, and people working out in gyms all has nothing to do with being able to, you know, pull a wheelbarrow or hit a, hit a hammer. You know, it's all has to do of putting on the tank top and being able to walk around, you know, and just, I do such a bad imitation, I'm just going to stop. <laughs> but, you know, it's all to kind of like, you may now be devoted and revere my body. You know, which I've been carving and chiseling and crafting with one type of this and, and whatever they do, you know. And so it's all a matter of what we're revering. Well, if we, what we revere, what we're devoted to and trust ourselves, cherish above all, is our own pristine awareness, then that's where we're going. That's what will draw you, right? And with that is the core refuge. Then if you, for example, in the context of Adriana Buddhism, if you make a very profound and meaningful and reverential and devoted relationship with a Vajrayana Guru, right, the way that becomes enormously meaningful is to view that Guru as an emanation of your own pristine awareness. To view that Guru as an emanation of Dharmakaya, who is none other than your own pristine awareness. And that will draw you to realize your own pristine awareness. And that appearance, that empty appearance, for which there is nothing existing from its own side, of the Guru, will be there to aid you and bless you on that path. But where are those blessings coming from? From the side of the object, something over there? When there's nothing over there from its own side existing in the first place? That's sheer superstition to think that. Right? There is blessing. Blessing being tremendously transformative, but the source of the blessing, of course, is where would it? Where else could it? By a process of elimination, where else could the blessing possibly be coming from? Than your own pristine awareness. And the valve, the valve, the faucet that turns it on, is attending to an emanation of your own pristine awareness with reverence, with devotion, with pure vision, and then receiving that. And then with tremendous gratitude turning to the Guru, thank you for the blessings, thank you for the teachings, thank you for the empowerments. And the source of it is all Dharmakaya. So there's really only one Guru, and that's Samantabhadra. And Samantabhadra is simply the embodiment of your own pristine awareness. So reverence, devotion. Um, if you want to, you know, develop a really incredibly sleek, handsome body, if you're not too old, you know, uh, and you have the right genes and all of that, then be reverential and devotional to the gym, to the gymnasium. Right? There you go. Anila's on her way. We're going to see him pirouetting around as a ballerina after some time on the tiptoes. Oh, yeah. So how to properly practice Guru Yoga? 
And what is the practice really designated, designed for? Of course, I think I've answered that. And it's always good to ask, what is the basis of designation? Because if one doesn't have at least some understanding, preferably a taste, and better yet, realization of emptiness, then there's Vajrayana level of Guru Yoga. Because there's multiple levels. There's Shravakayana, which is very meaningful. I'm not going to go into it now. We have another long question here. But the Shravakayana level of Guru Yoga, very, very meaningful. And the object of your devotion is another person who is there to guide you on the path to liberation. Very briefly, Mahayana, Bodhisattva Guru Yoga. As His Holiness told me, you look upon the Guru as if he or she were a Buddha, but not as a Buddha. That's what he said. As if to receive the blessings, but not as. Right. Oh, Dushe Sha, in Tibetan it's Dushe Sha, Sangi Yimbatu, Dushe Sha. Adopt the attitude as if this person were a Buddha. And then you get blessings. Right? But in Vajrayana, there's no as if about it. You look upon your Guru, and this could be your village Lama, who is not even a Geshe, not a Kempo, but is authentic, is passing on teachings authentically with good motivation. Your village Lama, and you look upon your village Lama as a Buddha. You look upon all your Gurus. If you have more than one, you look upon all as being one of the same nature, manifesting some as very high Lama and a very high throne, and some as a village Lama that you can just drop in and have tea with and chat with. When I was living with Geshe, with Gajarabhashi for two years, oh, not every afternoon, but very often in the afternoon, we're living outside of Hapman Bay, outside of San Francisco, hills overlooking the ocean, beautiful, very wild area. And we just go out, out walking. I don't know if that knows what it's like. Just go out walking with a lama. And so often the, the talk is not, oh, look, this, oh, see your completion, but. It's kind of like, you know, just ordinary stuff. Really ordinary stuff. Really ordinary stuff, you know? And one can think, oh, why? This is a, this is a Zokian master. Why don't you just talk about Zokian all the time? And maybe they have reasons. That if everything is of one taste of the display of Rikpa, then why go for all with exalted talk? Why not just talk about ordinary things and see that the Sublime permeates every aspect. There was never unwholesome talk. Not in oh, how many conversations I have with Dr. Never unwholesome talk. That never happened. But often just ordinary stuff. Ordinary stuff. So, in the midst of the ordinary, to see the sublime, and not waiting for the Lama to be up on a big high throne and perform some miracle. And when something exceptional happens, I heard of a case, and it was witnessed you know, by friends of mine, uh, from Yangtan Rinpoche. I don't know if I mentioned this. But he was giving empowerment a couple of years back in Ojai. Did I say this already? And he was giving empowerment. And I wasn't there. I could have been here. But friends of mine were there. I know the whole crew. It's right near Santa Barbara. He was giving empowerment. And, uh, and in the empowerment, very, very many empowerments, there's the the vase with a peacock, peacock feather with saffron, saffron water in it, yeah? and they'll pour it out. People take little sips. So Yandana is giving this empowerment, and, 
After a while, he pours and pours, turns the pot to pour a little bit more. And there's, there's no more. It's, he poured it like that. It's empty. And so, you know, okay, empty. So he puts it down. And one of the attendants said, oh, no, don't, don't worry. I'll go and fill it. It's simply easy. Just water and some saffron. He said, then never mind. Never mind. And he just takes it and he goes, and then he just kept on pouring it for the rest of the empire. He didn't call up the neuroscientists from MIT or Caltech, <laughs> Stanford, Harvard, and said, okay, you ready? You ready to see one? You ready to see one? I'm going to do something really weird here. No, it was just like, uh, don't bother to get the water. I'll just take care of it. Go into it now. Like that. So just ordinary. That, that's what really struck me about it. It wasn't like, okay, a person's dying of cancer and let's do a miraculous cure. It's just like, ah, oh, well, why go to get the water? I can take care of it easily. Like that. So small. Something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So from K, I've been pondering the metaphor or analogy of the four horses and the four measures. Bear in mind, that's a really, that's a very short lineage. I made, I made up that one. <laughs> so don't put a lot of stock in it. And you might not want to tell any lamas. He says, that's really schmaltzy. Okay. So that's, that's, I, but I like it. And I don't think he's really led anybody astray from the path out so far. So what do the other part... Oh, now you're going to really put me on the spot. Here's Alan Wallace's final exam for this analogy. What do the other parts of the chariot represent in my practice? Okay, the four wheels of the Four Noble Truths. Quick, help me out here. Uh, <laughs> um, I'd be all making it up. So yeah, it's just, it's just something that came to my mind. So no, that means it's not very deep. The four wheels of the undercarriage seem to be the four thoughts, the four thoughts that, uh, that sounds good to me. The four thoughts that turn the mind, yeah. Uh, these, the, the reins are the discipline of the practitioner. You can elaborate on this as, as, as much as you like. And, and I say that with no, no sarcasm whatsoever. If it's a useful metaphor, it's a light, it's a nice image, you know. And if it's a useful metaphor, then you can fill it out as you wish, sure. Okay, so the rein, the reins of the discipline of the pra- of the of the practitioner, which are held by the driver, but the driver can be a good driver or not so good a driver, inattentive or alert, and who is who is in the carriage? A uh, a passive or stupid passenger, or the master who knows the destination and the road that needs to be taken. The master will direct the driver. Is this the Buddha nature? In a way, sure. I'm ha- I'm happy to go with it a little bit. Um, just kind of step back. It's nice. And I'll get to the final paragraph, and we still have a couple of minutes left. Uh, a comment made. I think it was back in the in the in the year 2000 in the Destructive Emotions Mind and Life Conference. I believe it was then. It doesn't really matter much. But we're talking about that which drives people. So it pertains directly to your question here. Fundamental impulses. Fundamental impulses. So is it libido? Shall we believe Freud? Death wish? Shall we believe that we're really animals and we're 100% programmed by genetics and therefore it's all about survival and procreation? Is that, is, in other words, we have many desires. Some people have desires for, uh, for Harley Davidson motorcycles. And some people have desires for all kinds of things. But then we say, well, not everybody wants Harley Davidsons. And not everybody wants, no, not, not everybody. Okay, well, let's keep on going down. More and more primitive, more base, baseline, more, what's more and more fundamental. Not everybody wants to procreate. 
Right? Not everybody wants kids. Not everybody wants sex. And not everybody wants to survive. Some people take their own lives. So wait a minute. Now, okay, it can't be libido. It doesn't drive everybody. It can't be death with. A lot of people want to be alive. It can't be a live wish. Some people want to be dead. So exactly, you know, how, how, what's primal here? What really moves us? What's the primal impulse that makes us become doa, goers, sentient beings? Remember, synonym of sentient being is doa. Somebody who's on the move. Plants generally stay put. Animals, apart from coral, and a few people I know, generally... <laughs> I was joking about that one. Uh, but, you know, sentient beings are on the move. And so what moves us? Why are we moving? Why don't we just sit and die? You know, like, life is boring. Let's wait until it's over. You know? Why not? And His Holiness had, I think, the most meaningful and satisfying answer I've ever heard to that question. And I, I don't believe that he was citing any text. He could be, but I doubt it. I've never seen any text that gave this answer. Uh, and this was in a cross-cultural exchange with scientists. People like Paul Ekman, who's extremely well-versed in Darwinian theory, evolutionary theory, really knows it inside and out, and other outside outstanding scientists. So his Holandist's answer to this was, the prime, the prime mover, the fun, most fundamental impulse that we as sentient beings have is in Tibetan called Tsewa, and I would translate that as caring, caring, not carrying, but caring, that we care at all. What do we care about? Pleasure and pain? Pleasure and pain. I want one, don't want the other. Fundamentally caring. So people who kill themselves figure that's going to be less pain. People who want to survive figure that'll be less pain. People who decide they ever want to have kids feel that's going to be more pleasure until they learn better. And then, and people who don't want to have kids think that'll be less pain until they lie, die lonely deaths and find that didn't work out too well. So whatever it is, it's sewa, that caring, that impulse of caring. I really feel it's right that it's, it's prior to and more fundamental than craving and hostility. Because you can care without having, falling into mental afflictions of craving or hostility. It's prior to a more primitive than loving kindness or compassion. Because loving kindness has a positive valence. May you find happiness and causes of happiness. Upbeat. Thumbs up. And may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Thumbs down on, thumbs down on suffering and the causes of suffering. May you be free. It's prior to that. It's more fundamental than that. Right? It's really, I think he, I can't think of a deeper answer to that. And now I have no idea why I raised that point. But, oh, now I do. Why do we care? Why do we care? And especially if this worldview is correct in its central theme, its central tenet, that um, life is not, life is not, the, the end of life is not the termination of consciousness. It's just, it's just the implications of that are so awe-inspiring that we'll be on the move forever. We'll be on the move forever. Something's going to be moving us forever. Or Tsongaba calls it Tengiduma. At the end of his classic, beautiful little text, the root text of the three principles of the path. I translated many, many years ago. Loved it. Oh, and I still love it. It's magnificent. So short and so concise. So full of rich of meaning. But he, when he comes through his 
extremely concise and profound presentation of cultivating authentic motivation, renunciation, bodhicitta, then the view of emptiness. And then as he's coming to the conclusion, then he addresses, he addresses those who are reading his disciples and so forth and said, and now accomplish your eternal, accomplish your eternal yearning. Dengi Duma Dukjik Bu, I think it is. It's been years since I've read it in Tibetan. But I think it's Dengi Duma Dukjik Bu. Achieve your eternal longing, my child. Does that move you? Boy, it just speaks to my heart. Achieve your eternal longing. What you've been wishing for all along. And in Buddhist worldview, you know that's a lot. What you've been always striving for. That you've always cared about that has always eluded your reach, always something not quite reaching it, says now, realize, fulfill your aspiration, your eternal longing, satisfy that primal impulse of caring. Where would that caring stem from? Not genetics. You can lose your genes, you can lose your body and it's still there. Right? Where is it coming from? that doesn't let us rest until we're perfectly enlightened. Even if you're an arhat, it still doesn't let you rest. After some time, even there, you're aroused from dwelling in the immutable bliss of nirvana. Even there, there's something there that won't let you rest eternally in immutable bliss. Arouses you from it, insists that you venture onto the Mahayana path, the Vajra, to become a bodhisattva and come to the culmination. There is only one ultimate destination, says the Lotus Sutra. There's only one ultimate destination, and that is, now we come and tie it right back, I think at the first one, to James, the hidden land of your own Dharmakaya. And until you come home, completely unveiled, you'll be in motion, and you'll be moved by caring, and and the root of that caring cannot be, through a process of elimination, it cannot be anything other than your own Buddha nature. So these may be, uh, there may be other interpretations, but I often find this helpful. I think there is a similar metaphor in the Upanishads. So is there, is this explained on the Buddhist text? So no, I made it up. I made it up in terms of the four, the four horses and all of that. But the notion of a chariot, of a vehicle, Oh, that runs through everything, sure. And then finding, so there you are, in, uh, there you are in your vehicle, and then asking, alright, since I'm in motion anyway, I have no choice. Even if I decide, no, here I stop. Lots of luck with that. It's not an option. Can't stop. Right? Can't stop. Still in motion. Then since you're in motion, and you're in motion forever, then you got some options. And one option is to set your chariot in motion on a, in Tibetan, yangdak be lam, an authentic path. An authentic path is one that leads to the destination that is your heart's desire, your eternal longing. That would be authentic. And anything less will be a detour. So in the Mayana literature it says, why cross the same river twice? Why cross the river to become an arhat and then have to cross it all over again to become a Buddha? Why not just cross it once? Get on with it.
become a bodhisattva. And for that, oh, why not achieve shamatha? <laughs> then your bodhisattva can be uncontrived, spontaneous, and really become bodhisattva. Then seal it with a vipassana, and then you are not, you are on a, on, you are on an authentic path every lifetime until you finish. That would be a nice, oh, that's way too limp an adjective. That would be a good assurance to know that in every lifetime you'll be on a, on authentic path. No life wasted. So something worth aspiring to, I think. Hola, so. Enjoy your dinner.